Hello, and welcome to another episode of Out the Gate, your podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. As you may have noticed, I try to get a new episode up every couple of weeks. Last week, I missed getting out a new interview because, honestly, I was exhausted after a training hike I did and couldn't find the time or energy to edit and post the podcast. My wife and I are training for an eight-day hike along the High Sierra Trail in early August. The trek crosses the Sierra Nevada Mountains from west to east through Sequoia National Park. It ends on Mount Whitney, the highest mountain in the lower 48, at just under 14,500 feet. Anyway, last Sunday, I did a training hike of 17 miles with nearly 5,000 feet of elevation gain, while carrying 30 pounds on my back, and honestly, I was wiped. But I'm feeling better this week, and so I was able to cut together this really fun and informative interview with Jim Diepenbrock, a local sailor who has more than one good sailing story to share. Let me ask you this. Have you ever imagined what you would do if you were out on the bay and your rig came down? In March, during the Corinthian Yacht Club midwinter race, Jim was sailing his new to him Swan 48 when he was dismasted. You may have read about the incident on the Latitude 38 website. That's actually where I first heard about it. And I reached out to Jim because I thought it would be instructive to have him tell us about what happened and how he coped with it. We ended up talking about that incident, but so much more. So without further ado, here's Jim. My name is Jim Diepenbrock, and I own uh, today a Swan 48 called Wingman 5. As I understand it, Wingman currently has no mast. Is that correct? That is correct. <laughs> so uh, she is a fancy motorboat. Yeah, it's a seven-knot motorboat. Um, <laughs> and, and it's and it's a it's a instructive but sad story because I bought the boat in. Uh, this past summer in June in Los Angeles or Newport Beach. And at the time, the boat needed a refit. And I, uh, the boat was 20 years old, 19 years old. And so I told the guy who was in charge of the project, I want you to always think of what you would do if you and your family were in the middle of the ocean to this boat. And so based on that design spec, if you will, we went through a lot of different things. Ultimately, the decision was we needed to pull the rig out of the boat and replace all the rod rigging, all the standing rigging, all the running rigging, everything. And we did that. We took the boat to, to a, a, a rigger in uh, Long Beach, and the mast was pulled. The mast was completely redone. The only original fitting on that mast is actually the column itself. And then we sailed around Southern California for five or six months more and uh, brought the boat to San Francisco. And we had a very, very easy trip past um, conception, but we brought the boat up north and with, without issue. And um, we were out, been out sailing a few times and coincident or just happens that we were doing the uh, Corinthian 
uh, midwinter race out by, uh, we're going out to Point Diablo. Uh -huh. We had just tacked over to port. We were about midway underneath the Golden Gate Bridge. We tacked over to port for roughly a ley line to Point Diablo. We had been sailing for two or three minutes and I was steering by the um, telltales on the jib. You were pretty hard on the wind? Oh, we were, we were absolutely pointing. Okay. And it was blowing um, about 15 knots true. So it wasn't windy. Right. It was remnants of a flood tide. So the water was flat. We had about a three foot swell. The boat had seen conditions twice this uh, windy a few times before, after I'd had the mast uh, refitted. So what happened next was just inconceivable to me, which was I'm driving by the telltales and all of a sudden the head stay goes 15, maybe 20 feet to leeward. And I thought, well, that's weird. And uh, the next thing I know is of course the mast fell over with, with virtually silent. There was virtually no noise. Wow. And, um, now when just, you say the mast fell over, the, the whole mast, part of the mast, what are you talking here? Right, the top third, from the uh, top of the running backstay higher. So the top third fell over. So it was at the point where the running backstay met that it toppled? Correct. Correct. Mm. It's a three spreader rig and the, the third spreader between the, the halfway between the second and third spreader, the mass just uh, folded over. Bizarrely, very, very silently. You know, we were all kind of looking at, at each other going, what the heck? So first things first, uh, wanted to make sure everybody was on board. They were, wanted to make sure everybody was hurt. They weren't. And in the middle of that, um, I made a hard right turn to go downwind. Okay. At, at which point we set the, the, the port, we were on port tack, we set the port running backstay to support the mast because the backstays, the split backstay, they were gone. Uh, they were just had so much slack in them that they were gone. So now we're, we're broad reaching back into San Francisco Bay. Cause so obviously your fear was that it would topple backwards, that you would lose the whole mass. Forwards, forward. Forwards, okay. Well, you're right, Ben. Uh, going upwind without a head stay, I was afraid it was gonna come back. Right. So we immediately turned downwind to put the pressure on the, the back stays, which weren't there. So we set the running back stay. Mm -hmm. And the running backs, they held the rig up. Um, wow. And now, now we're going downwind. The jib is in the water. The main is, is flogging a little bit because it's folded in half. I knew the crew was safe. I knew nobody was hurt. And so now you're looking at this thing going, well, now what do we do? Truthfully, for the first time in my sailing career, I looked at the situation and said, I really don't know what to do. The halyards were pinched in the mast break, so we couldn't lower the, the either sail. Mm -hmm. And we couldn't send a person aloft because they would have to go higher than the, the mast was currently supported. I don't know about you, but I don't want to go <laughs> above where there are any shrouds. No, thank you. Right. That, that, that doesn't sound like any fun. And, and then if you got up there, you'd have to swing overboard uh, maybe 15 feet to get to the masthead, uh, which was about 15 feet to the leeward over the boat to release the halyards. And, and even if you release them, I don't know that we could have gotten the sail down. No, it's got to go up and then down and through, through a pinch point. And wow. Correct. 
Correct. So it was, it was unique scenario where I'm looking at this thing and, and I said, okay, anybody got any ideas? Because truthfully, I didn't know what to do other than, you know, maintain going back into the bay. People were safe. So I said, all right, well, let's start disconnecting things and, and let's prepare for a mass failure in case this gets worse. I want to flash back to kind of your state of mind. You're the skipper. Was it a sense like these are the kinds of incidents, right, that we think about and think, okay, these are the moments of truth. To this point, it sounds like you've done everything on point, kept everybody safe. What is your mindset, though? What's going through your head? My mindset is, you know, how do we get the boat and crew back to the beach? Yeah. And that was really it. I was prepared to run the boat up on the beach. I was prepared to do whatever it took to get the crew um, back to the families. Yeah. So that, that was where I was. And it didn't matter to me if the boat sank or didn't sink as long as um, we could save everybody's you know, life, if, to be dramatic about it. So sure. that was what, what went through my head. I, I will tell you, I've been, frankly, in worse situations in the ocean. This one didn't really bother me too much for a lot of reasons. One, we were prepared. And I had the guys go downstairs and I have a battery powered DeWalt angle grinder and um, had three charged batteries and a dozen cutaway discs. Good thing to have on board. Yes, I, I practiced with them and I can cut a half inch stainless steel bolt in 15 seconds. So the only way you're gonna get rod rigging down is to cut it. You're not gonna saw through it. I mean, you, you, you would be out there for days trying to saw with a, with a hacksaw through a rod rigging. You gotta have a, a, a cutaway disc, you gotta have an angle grinder and you probably need some backups and you need to practice because it's fairly violent. There, there are a lot of sparks. Yeah. And, and, and I would recommend getting some big gloves. So we had all that and we got that up on deck and we could have cut those shrouds away in, I don't know, two, three minutes at the most. We released the running backs, I'm sorry, the, the fixed backstays because they were no longer serving us and I didn't want them to go in the water. So we took those down from the back of the boat, disconnected them. We spent a lot of time making sure there were no ropes or shrouds or anything in the water. Uh, and once we were sure of that, I started the motor. Okay. I wanted to reduce the apparent wind's impact on the sails. So I figured if you know we were going four or five knots downwind, if we could go eight or nine knots downwind, there'd be less force in the sails and consequently the rig. What I really like about hearing this is it sounds like you're taking the time you need. Um, I'm, I've certainly been in situations where I have said, oh shit, I got to start the engine. And there were lines over the side, you know, and uh, wrap the prop quickly. And then boom, you have no engine, but you're taking the time to think through. So it doesn't cascade into bigger and bigger problems. Yeah. I used to sail with Tom Blackhaller years ago. He did a lot of yelling and screaming, but one thing he would always say is slow is pro. And his message was, think through this. Uh, by the way, I want it done very quickly, but think through it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I believe that with all my heart that you've got to think through these things 
30 seconds is not gonna change the world, but not spending that 30 seconds might. So we were, we were very thoughtful about that. I was in hindsight, very happy with the way that went. You know, one of my guys wanted to call the Coast Guard and I adamantly, adamantly protested and said, you are not picking up that radio. I, I love the Coast Guard. I've spent a lot of time raising money for the Coast Guard, but if they come out, they take over the situation and you no longer have control of your destiny. And we did not need them. I, I wanna emphasize that very clearly that there's time to call the Coast Guard. It's usually when the water's up around the, the deck. Um, right. But if they come, uh, they'll, they'll take it over and they're reading from a playbook and it won't go the way you want it to. So time and a place, it, it was neither for us, fortunately. And so we just, you know, I, uh, I called my rigger and, um, and sent him a couple of pictures. And he said, do you think you can make it back to the dock at Schoonmarker? And I said, you know what, why not? And, and so we started heading towards Schoonmarker where the boat lives. And there's an outside breakwater dock. And fortunately, Sausalito was not having its usual hurricane style winds that come through the passes. And we were able to tie up to the dock. I mean, it sounds like you got very lucky in terms of the wind not howling down on you there. We did. We were able to sail a port tack the whole way back because um, a jibe would have been uh, likely the end of that rig. We were fortunate that we did not have to jibe. We got back to the dock and, and it was, you know, blowing, I don't know, five or ten. It wasn't, there wasn't much wind. The rigger came down and I thought he was going to climb the mast and he said, hell no, <laughs> I'm not going up there. <laughs> He's smarter than that. <laughs> yeah. So we tried to, uh, he said, but, and then, and then we got Ken Keefe on the phone from KKMI and, and Ken said, well, grab one of the halyards and, and pull the, the top part of the mast in tighter to the boat hmm. and see if that doesn't, you know, does anything. And, and, and it did, it, you know, pulled the mast in tighter to the boat, but that was it. It's amazing, you know, we, there are a lot of kayakers in, in Sausalito and Richardson Bay and, you know, they're all coming by to look and I'm suggesting to them, that's a big piece of metal that may fall on your head, I would back up. Yeah. And uh, the kayakers still want to come, you know, about 10 feet from the boat, but what do you do? What, anyway, time, what time is we, it now? Uh, what time of day? Uh, two two o'clock, three o'clock. Okay. And, uh, and we did that and Ken said, you know, the only thing you can do is, is bring the boat to the yard. And he um, got a crane operator and a rigger and we motored the boat over the yard uh, with the sails up and, and uh, they put a rigger up in a crane and he was able to disconnect the halyards and we were able to pull the sails down and, and there you have it. In one piece, did the sails come down all together? The sails came down in one piece. We, we, they're over at the North Loft right now. I, I don't think there's any major damage to the sails. Wow. Uh, you know, there might be a nip and tuck that has to be done, but, but yeah. nothing, no big deal. Yeah. Has there been any resolution, any thoughts on what caused this? Okay, I'm going to speculate now because we, we don't have solid proof, but the shrouds on this boat, you know, in a modern rig, you have cups at the spreader tip. On this boat, there's a, a V-shaped notch at the spreader tip. The shroud goes into that V-shaped notch and then there's a, a strap that, that closes that notch and a bolt goes through that. 
Does that make sense? I think so, yeah. A and strap that, over the end of the spreader that holds that into the knot. So it, it holds the shroud in place. And when we got in the uh, mast out of the boat, on the side that failed, that keeper, if you will, that keeps the shroud in the spreader was gone. So we think what happened was we tacked somehow or another, the bolt came unbolted, the keeper came went away and the shroud was loose from the spreader and that was that. Hmm. And there was a weak point in the mast where it, and it just folded. I mean, well, yeah, if the shroud kind of came out of the spreader, then there's, you know, six inches, I don't know, eight inches of, of extra slack in the shroud and the rig just went. And the rig went, yeah. Yeah. I understand you're, um, well, <laughs> I was going to say, I understand you're replacing the mast. Obviously, you're replacing the mast. What are you replacing the mast with? Well, that's, that's the question. Turns out that there aren't a lot of aluminum mast makers left in the world. And those that are, uh, you know, are very high quality places, but they'd have to hire a naval engineer uh, or naval architect and an engineer. They have to do all the calculations. I mean, this mast is not sitting on a shelf somewhere. So we're, we're having to replace it uh, with a carbon fiber rig by, by offshore mast in, uh, in Detroit. And that mast is being built right now, and, and we expect to have it uh, the end of July. Um, but there's crazy things going on. You know, they have a supply chain issue where they can't get enough glue right now. <laughs> All kinds of supply chain issues now. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm hoping to have the mast put in by August, but, you know, we'll see. Uh -huh. Was the original mast a, a Selden or was it some a, a name we know or did did Nodder Swan make their own rigs? No, Nodder made their own rigs. They had their own galvanizing tank. They made the most magnificent aluminum spars you've ever seen. Mm. Um, but they have since stopped. They have since stopped and, and now outsource. I think most of their rigs are made by, um, by offshore spars in Michigan. Okay. Uh, some may be made by Southern. We got a quote from Southern spars in... Um, you know, I'm not sure if they're in Australia or New Zealand, but either case, it was a $40,000 um, shipping cost. Oh, gosh. And so that gets a little ugly. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned that you've been in uglier situations in the ocean. You've been sailing for some time. When did you start sailing? You know, I started when I was um, five and could swim. My, my dad learned how to sail in college and and we started lake sailing, you know, I live in Sacramento and we started lake sailing at Folsom Lake and then graduated to uh, the Delta. And then shoot, I was 14 or so. And he joined the Corinthian Yacht Club and, and had a, at that point, a Tartan 27 uh -huh. um, at the Corinthian. And then by the time I was 16, had a Tartan 37 and um, I had the keys to it. So I'm 16, I've got a 37 foot sailboat. <laughs> I sailed the heck out of it. When I was gr graduating from college, my father bought hole number one of the Swan 46, which was their, their most successful build, I think, maybe in history. They, they built a ton of Swan 46s and, and we had a hole number one and, and sailed it all over the Pacific. Where, where did you take it? 
Well, mostly coastal stuff. We did we did Cabo three times. We did Ensenada, I don't know, ten times. We did uh, the Puerto Vallarta. We did a lot of of racing on that boat and and cruising and and um, you know it was really a, a special time for me growing up. That's wonderful. Was that the whole family, or is it you and your father? Uh, my brother and I and my father mostly, and and my sisters on occasion. Um, but it was a fantastic way for us to spend the weekends together and be with the family. And I think that's why my dad did it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I grew up spending many a weekend on the boat with the, the four of us, the family, and it was just always a very special time. It's a, it's a unique way to spend time together. There's nothing better. So the, I was going to ask um, how far back the name wingman goes. Cause you said this is wingman five. We're all, were yeah. the Barton's wingman as well, or did it start with the swans? No, no it started with, with, with my boats. Uh, my dad's boats were mostly named Troubadour. Okay. But in 1981, we flew back to Pietrasari, Finland, to see the boat, the Swan 46, under construction. And I brought with me a nine-inch, nine which seemed huge, Sony TV with a VCR player in it. And I handed it to, guy, to the guys at, at Nator, and they said, what do you want us to do with this? And I said, well, I'd like you to put this TV and this VCR player in the boat. And they said, well, we don't put TVs in boats. And I said, <laughs> we, we, we'd like you to put this TV in the boat. And it seemed like a minor thing, because, you know, a nine-inch Sony, which, which at the time was arguably state-of-the-art. Um, they, 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 so they, they acquiesced and put the, the, the TV in, and... and uh, <clears throat> Shortly thereafter, they released the movie Top Gun, and whenever we were racing or sailing up and down the coast, that movie just looped continuously downstairs for the off watch to, to watch. And I don't think that tape ever came out of the player. So the name is, is, is a tribute to my late father. Oh, that is nice. That's wonderful. Wonderful when a name has an attachment like that. And then all of your boats have been wingman ever since, huh? Yeah. What boats have been, what was wingman one? Was that wingman? That was, that well, was not wingman one. Cause that was your father's boat. No, we, wingman one was mine. Um, we, we, uh, I, I married a woman who uh, didn't like that tipping thing. So I went to the dark side for a long time and, and uh, wingman one was a TR 40 power boat. Okay. We had a TR 52 power boat and then we had a, uh, a J70 and, and then a TR44, and now we have the Swan uh, 48. Wonderful. What are some of, you mentioned, you know, you mentioned being in some hairy situations. I don't know if you have some stories you want to tell there, but I just was curious, what are some of the more memorable times you have from being on the ocean or racing in the bay? You know, I was watching, uh, oh shoot, some movie with Matthew McConaughey the other day, and, and he said, uh, oh, Sahara, you know, great cinematic treat. But nevertheless, he said in that movie, everything that's wonderful in his life happened in the water. And uh, I'm confident <clears throat> that that's true of me. I mean, we've had some phenomenal times. I'll, I'll never forget, you know, my brother coincidentally had a Swan 45 and, and we won our class in the Transpact and I'll never forget surfing into the finish in the Molokai channel and, and uh, being with him. <clears throat> uh, 
you know, other races into, into Cabo, just, you know, there's, there's just nothing like finishing in Cabo in the middle of a warm night with your t-shirt on with the people that you care about. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then there's been some, some very scary times. I think it was 1987. It might've been 1985. We were delivering my dad's 146 to Newport beach for the start of the, the Cabo race. And, and we got caught uh, the weather forecast, by the way, was 15 to 25. It blew over 100. Whoa. We closed the San Francisco airport. We had a very, very bad night. Where uh, were you on the uh, transit? We, we left uh, San Francisco about 10 at night. I went to bed because I knew I was going to get the, you know, <laughs> the bad watch. The dog watch. <laughs> exactly. And, and one of the guys came and started shaking me. He said, we need you to get, come up on deck. And I said, well, why? And they said, well, because nobody can drive the boat. And that's when I realized that we were all over the place. I'd been sound asleep. And so I went upstairs. And at that point, it was probably blowing uh, 60. And uh, we had an analog wind gauge that went to 85. And shortly after that, it was pinned at 85. And mm. it never came off at 85 until it got worse and it got worse because the waves were so big. I don't recall the exact height on that mast, but 46 foot boat, let's go for 60 feet. We would get to the bottom of the, the trough of the wave and the wind gauge would go back to about 10. I don't know how tall those waves were, but when a 60 foot mast is reading 10 knots and it's blowing 85 or bigger, um, that's a big wave. Yeah. And did you have any canvas up? Uh, we couldn't get it down. We got the, the jib down. We couldn't get the main down. It was plastered against a rig. We were able to get a, two reefs in it, but we couldn't get it down. And we sure as hell couldn't turn into to the, the wind to lower it. So we uh, took two of us to drive. We were in climbing harnesses. We had, I don't know, four feet of water down below. All the electronics were gone. People were deathly sick. And it was a very, very long night. Woke up at sunrise having left San Francisco 10-ish, maybe 11-ish, woke up at sunrise, you know, with no electronics, we had no idea where we were. And, and I looked ashore and I said, gosh, I think that's Point Sur. And one of the guys who was with us was a physician. And he said, this other guy is having heart palpitation, palpitations. We need to get him to a hospital. So we motored for about three hours to get back to Monterey. So if you know those distances, you know, it's roughly 100 miles, I think, maybe 120 to Point Sur. And uh, we got just flushed down the coast. My love-hate with the Coast Guard started that night when we called them and they said, sorry, we can't get you. And we can't come out because the weather's too bad? Correct. They mm. wouldn't launch. We can't launch. Uh. So it was, <laughs> so all these things, you know, provide perspective. Yeah. It's the highs and the lows. Right. So the right. wind had abated enough the next morning that you were able to then yeah. motor back up the coast. Yeah. San Francisco airport recorded uh, sustained winds of in excess of 100 and they, uh, they shut the airport. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was a tough night. People love swans. Not our swans, and I, with good reason. I, I myself am a huge fan, having sailed a number of them on ocean passages. What is it that makes them so special to you? 
my, my, my mom was the one who thought that, you know, we should get a swan. And my dad and I, at the time of our brother, we really didn't know what they were. Um, and we learned more and more about them. And, and, and I think, look, you can buy a faster boat, you can buy a lot of other boats, um, but the combination of fit, finish, luxury, and, and in my mind, just beauty, um, make those boats hard to beat. And, and, and there are guys who will, you know, yell and scream when I say that and say, you know, you should go buy a J125 and you can go t three times as fast. And all that's true. But I've been through a lot of weather and a lot of different swans and uh, survived every one of them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's what creates the loyalty. Yeah. So uh, as an aside, I was doing a, a race in the Caribbean, uh, uh, the Boxer Day Regatta out of Antigua, the day after Christmas, many years ago on a swan, I don't even remember, but 80 or 90 or, you know, something massive. And there's 30 of us in crew and, and uh, we're getting ready to finish this race. We're on the last downwind leg. It's a downwind finish. And we're, I don't know, hundred yards off the beach going on this downwind leg. And the, the owner says, okay, everybody overboard. And, huh? and I thought he was kidding, but I, I looked at the, the crew captain and he said, everybody's swimming. So the, I don't know, 25 out of the 30 of us, jumped off the boat and swam for the beach. And uh, he ended up winning the race. I'm not exactly sure how they got the kite down. I think they just cut it loose. After that, they changed the racing rules to something along the lines of, you've got to finish with everybody you start with. <laughs> Ballast over the side. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, thank God you were in the Caribbean and not racing in the San Francisco Bay. Oh, well, San Francisco, you wouldn't have done this, but when the Caribbean, you know, it's, you know, I don't know, hundred yards and warm water and, you know, yeah. walk to the beach. <laughs> That's a great story. We beat them to the bar. <laughs> That's right. A little wet, but at that point, who cares? Yeah. Oh, man. It's, it's not often you get to change a rule on sailing. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. What are some of your memorable San Francisco Bay racing memories? Oh boy. Uh, well, okay. So, uh, we were out with on my dad's Swan 38 with Tom Blackhaller again, and we were sailing in some race. I don't recall what it was. And, um, and I was doing the bow and I think my brother was doing the mast and we fouled up a dip pole jibe and Tom's yelling and screaming at us. And, you know, uh, he ends up sailing off the race course. And I looked back and said, you know, what's going on? He says, we're going to go practice dip pole jibes. You guys have got to get this right. I said, okay, I guess we're not finishing the race. He says, no, we're going to go practice dip pole jibes. Well, he ran the boat aground purposefully in the Berkeley flats. And we sat there and he turns the motor on and he's able to kick the stern through the eye of the wind, uh, both sides. And we ended up doing 40, maybe 50 dip pole jibes until he was absolutely convinced that my brother and I could could do a dip pole jibe. Wow. <laughs> so, so there's that. Wow, that is amazing. And your dad was okay with him treating his boat this way. <laughs> he figured, you know, at obvious, you know, 
arguably one of the best sailors of, the, of his generation. And, and right. this is what he wanted to do. And we were going to get the most out of him we could. That is great. And you guys got a good lesson. Yeah. Well, Jim, this has been such a pleasure. Is there anything else that you want to talk about? I would say this, man, to your audience who's interested in going offshore, go. There's so much to get wrong. There's so much to get right. But it will absolutely change your life. Yeah. It sounds like sailing has really given you so much throughout your life, being on the water. You know, uh, last weekend I del- helped deliver a friend's powerboat to, to Newport Beach, and we went 35 knots down the coast in a 52-foot boat. Wow. We left San Francisco at 6 a.m., stopped in Monterey for fuel, made it to Santa Barbara by 5 p.m., tied up. <laughs> and the whole time I'm thinking, this is the most soulless thing I have done in my life. <laughs> There is something about going slow, like yeah. we were talking about before. <laughs> yeah, no part of it was boating. It, it was riding a rocket. You know, what happens in a sailboat is you're going seven, eight, nine knots, whatever it is, and you get to talk to people, and you get to experience Mother Nature, and you get to be part of it. And it's a wonderful thing. I couldn't agree more. And it teaches you many lessons along the way. It does. It does. So, again, my advice, get out there. Good advice to live by. Jim, thank you. Been my pleasure. Well, that wraps up this week's episode. I started this podcast to learn and get more involved in the San Francisco sailing community. So I absolutely love it when listeners reach out and make connections. Recently, a listener named Robert contacted me, and it turns out we're practically next-door neighbors. Anyway, one thing led to another, and last week, Robert invited me to go sailing on his lovely Gulf Star 37. We had a great time sailing, sharing sailing stories, and talking about gear. Anyway, that's all to say... I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Instagram at OutTheGateSailing or email me at OutTheGateSailing at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, I'd encourage you to leave a review in Apple Podcasts because it helps others find the program. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show, and until next time, smooth sailing.